0: Thanks for joining us in our study of the letter to the Galatians. It is in this scripture we're reminded that the Gospel is the A to Z of the Christian life. The truth of the Gospel, that Jesus is better, should change our thinking and approach to absolutely everything. Cornerstone exists to proclaim and demonstrate Christ in all of life, so as to make people perfect in Him. Today's going to be a little bit different for us. We're starting a new section, Galatians 5, 16 to 26 this morning, and oftentimes when I start a new section, I'll take a Sunday to do kind of a section introduction, just sort of walk us through certain things in the text that I think will be helpful for us to have a right and and, uh, high-level view or understanding of the scriptures that will give us a better uh, ability to start with it. So sometimes I introduce the text. Sometimes you have to introduce the topic if you're dealing with something that will maybe be new to your reader. Sometimes, though, you have to introduce the teacher. Uh, I don't know if you have ever had this experience where you are maybe reading a Christian book or an article or something like that, and as you're reading, you're kind of like, I don't know where this person's coming from. Like, I, I, don't, I don't quite get it. I'd like to know a little bit. I, I find sometimes I have to stop and uh, maybe look up a little bit about the person, what kind of church are they coming from, what schools do they go to. If I can find a doctrinal statement, that's great. It helps me know what they believe and so I can read them better. That's going to be a little bit of what today is, uh, just kind of an introduction of the teacher on the subject that we're going to be coming to here in Galatians. You'll understand more in a few moments. For now, let's read Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 to 26, and then we will go to the Lord in prayer. If you will, please now look at verse 16. Paul writes, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Let's pray. Father, we come now and uh, definitely ask your blessing on our time together in your word this morning. Lord, we need your grace poured out on us, your love, your unity, um, your (laughs) humility even to be worked in our lives so that we can kind of talk through some things that we need to understand Individually, as a church, so that we know where we're all coming from and how we approach your word. We want your word to be ultimate, and we want to always do everything we can to draw the attention and the glory back to you. And so, I pray that as we work through some of these things this morning, that will be what happens, and we will be prepared to move forward in your text here in the weeks ahead. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Well, I feel like I've said this before. But one of the things that I really enjoy uh, when I'm reading a book or maybe watching a movie is when an author or a storyteller will weave a detail or sometimes more than one detail into a story early on that they then uh, somehow come back to later in the story and show you how important or significant that was, right? The first time you're reading a book maybe and you see that happen, you didn't know that was important. But then you get to the end, you're like, oh, that's what that was for, right? Now it all makes sense, and you start connecting pieces. I think it's an indicator that the author, the storyteller, has a, a really good plot and has put a lot of thought into how they want to tell the story. Well, I am definitely no storyteller, but as I looked through Galatians, I knew from the very beginning that I would eventually end up here in verse 16 and that we would have to start talking through some of these very practical issues of what it means to live our life in the Spirit And as such, I felt that there would come a point where I would have to take a little bit of time just to kind of present to you some of my own theological views regarding what it means to live your life in the Spirit um, just so you could know where I was coming from. And so about six months ago, I gave the better part of a message to sharing a little bit of the story of my background with you just so you would know where I had come from um, in my own life. That message had a a purpose at the moment I preached it, but now you'll hear the rest of the story. I really preached that message for today. I I knew that I wanted to come here eventually to this point, and so I thought, well, let me throw this out now, give it a little bit of time to sit, a little bit of time to settle. If people have questions, they can come talk to me, ask me about it, which some of you did, and I appreciated that. But it was actually for today, so I could come back and sort of build on that. Now, before I go any further... Let me make uh, three opening statements to you about what we're going to do today or in light of what we're going to do today. First, what I'm about to present to you represents my views and my views alone, okay? I want that to be very, very clear here. I'm not representing the elders or the church as a whole. I'm sharing my own thoughts, which means then that if you have any issues with anything I say today, I hope you don't, but if you do, you have one person to come talk to, and that's me. Got it? Okay, don't don't go talk to everybody else. You come talk to me if you have an issue, and I'd be glad to talk with you about it. Uh, second, please know that for all the things I'm about to say, my purpose here is not, and you'll hear more about this as I go, uh, my purpose is not to convince you of anything this morning. In fact, I'm going to make the point you can't be convinced of anything this morning based on just what I share with you in the next 30 to 45 minutes. I'm really just trying to help you understand why I hold the positions I hold, why I believe what I believe, and you can go you know think about that on your own later but just understand um, my beliefs affect the way I read, interpret, apply, and then preach the Scripture. And so I just I felt like I needed to share that with you before we move into this next section of Galatians. And I start saying things, and you're sitting there wondering, why, why is he saying this? Why isn't he saying that? I want you to have a little bit of context, okay, just to help you out. I think it will be good for us as we work through the Scriptures. Third and finally, uh, I cannot begin to express to you how nervous I am about doing this because I am truly afraid that my heart will not come across the way I mean it to. It's happened before, and I don't want it to happen today. Um, My purpose is not to make anyone in here angry. My purpose is not to attack anybody or their positions or beliefs. Again, I'm not even trying to change your mind. I'm just simply trying to share with you where I come from, and I hope that after 10 years now of faithfully standing up here as faithfully as I've been able to, uh, and trying to fully proclaim God's word to you, you know my heart, and you will at least give me the benefit of the doubt for the next 30 to 40 minutes. Okay, Just bear with me, assume the best, and maybe this will all work out. I, I will start by simply reminding you, at least a little bit, about my background. And if you want to hear the entire story, you can go on our website. The sermon was titled, An Argument from Experience, Part 1. It was in Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. But I, I grew up in a Pentecostal holiness church. That was the denomination I grew up in. Uh, from the time I was born pretty much until I was 18 or 19 years old. And during that time period, I fully embraced and identified with their theology. In our particular context, that particular denomination and church, that meant that I did not believe that you received the Holy Spirit until some point after your salvation, so you could be saved now, and then it would be you know, months or years later before you would actually receive the, the Holy Spirit. This was known as the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And the evidence of you receiving that is that you would receive the gift of speaking in tongues. In fact, I embraced all of the spiritual gifts. I viewed the role of the Holy Spirit within the church and with individual believers as being mainly that of giving these gifts and of performing these signs and wonders as they were referred to in our circles. And this, of course, was what I had grown up with, and so I believed it without any question. But as I became a teenager, I began to be bothered. I shared all this before. I began to be bothered by some of the hypocrisy I saw within our church. I'd see people who on Sunday nights and Wednesday nights would stand up and would do all kinds of things and evidence all kinds of you know, expressions of the Holy Spirit, but then come Monday night or Friday night, and if they're sitting at our house, they're telling dirty jokes and being mean-spirited and no different than anyone else I knew in life, believer or unbeliever. I mean, it, was just, it just didn't sit well with me. I didn't care for it, and it soured me. It did. I've never denied that, or I may have denied it then, but I wouldn't deny it now. The whole thing just began to sicken me because, you know, I may not have been any better. I wasn't even a believer at this point in my life, but at least I wasn't a hypocrite in my mind. This is how I thought about it. At least I wasn't pretending to be one thing on this time and then another thing on another time. And I just didn't like it. And so here I am, 16 years old, I asked my parents if I can leave our church, go to another church in town where a lot of my friends went. And they said yes, and so I switched uh, from our church to this other church. That was the day I left Pentecostalism. It wasn't because of any biblical or theological reasons. It was purely because I was sick of the hypocrisy I saw in our local church. Now, fast forward that story to my freshman year of college. I am finally and truly converted. Uh, I had gone forward in a service when I was nine, prayed a sinner's prayer. I've shared that story before, so I'm not going to repeat it today. If you've never heard it, ask me afterwards. But you know, here I am, finally 18 years old. A series of events have occurred and have brought me to this point where I finally put my faith in Jesus Christ alone. I finally, my eyes are finally opened to understand the gospel. And now all of a sudden, I began questioning everything I had ever believed. Ever. I mean, if I had been so wrong about my own salvation, what else had I been wrong about? That was kind of my my mindset. And so I just began questioning everything. And that did not begin purposefully, or immediately, it wasn't like I sat down one day. I'm like, I'm just going to question everything. I'm just going <laughs> to, I'm just going to make a list and go through that whole list. It actually started because I was just spending, and to my shame, now I was spending hours every day, as much time as I could, just pouring through God's Word. I just was so hungry, and I wanted to understand. And the more I was doing that, and the more I was changing, and I didn't even know I was changing at points. Like it was just happening kind of naturally. And, you know, long story short, as that process sort of unfolded, what happened was it turned me into a skeptic, and not necessarily in a good way all the time, like sometimes it was quite bad, and I just felt like there was so much I had blindly accepted, and that was so easily parroted by myself or by others that I just reached this point where if you could not show me in Scripture, chapter and verse, black and white, why you believed what you believed about anything, I didn't want to talk to you. I do not want to hear it, and I became a big jerk. I really did, okay? For several years, I became a big jerk. I ruined some friendships and relationships. I hurt a number of people. Um, I have regrets to that, uh, some of those things to this day. Thankfully, eventually, I calmed down a little bit, (laughs) grew up a little bit. But as I shared with you that last time, six or seven months ago, you know, that story, my background affects me to this day. Your background affects you. My background affects me. And so because of my past, I am still a skeptic, hopefully not in so much the bad way as I used to be now, but I'm, I'm the kind of person who is unafraid of questioning anything I find in Scripture, any belief I hold anywhere, because I figure there's only two outcomes of that process. Either I'm going to question it, and I'm going to come out of the Scriptures and go, yep, what I believe is correct, perfect, stay right where I am. Or I'm going to question it and realize hey, I'm off a little bit. I need to change this. Maybe I'm off completely. I need to abandon this thought. I mean, whatever the case may be, you're never going to go wrong when you turn to Scripture and you just go through it trying to confirm if what you believe is true. I had a teacher in seminary who used to have this saying, the day you stop changing is the day you stop growing. Because unless you're Jesus and you have everything you believe perfectly correct, you've got areas that need to change. I promise you, even if you don't know what they are, you have them. So it's true. The day you stop changing is the day you stop growing. And so I have tried to keep that up. Uh, to try to make sure my beliefs are as biblically uh, accurate as they can be. Secondly, because of my past, I still struggle. I admitted this last time. I still struggle with how to think through and understand the role of emotions and experience within the Christian life. I know there's a place for it. I know that there is there is a right way to, to think through and, and experience those things, and yet there's a part of me that has just never really felt fully comfortable because of the ex- excesses and the, the things I saw growing up, it's just always kind of left me a little uneasy and uncomfortable. So I just acknowledge that. And then finally, because of my past, there is no single area of theology and practical Christian living that I have wrestled with more than that of the Holy Spirit. None. I mean, as I look back, I've been, say, what, 21 years now? This, this month? 21 years this month? I look back over these 21 years of, of of walking with Jesus, the number one topic that I have come back to over and over again and re-examined and thought through and changed on most has got to be this specific one. And that does not make me an expert. Please understand that. In fact, over the years, I felt like I have more questions than I have answers now to a lot of my my thoughts and ideas. And there are a few things that I do feel fairly certain about uh, regarding the Spirit, but there's other things that I think I'm just going to die feeling Very uncertain about. Now, why why am I bringing all of this up today? Well, because five times here in the text that I just read to you, Paul makes reference to something to do with the Spirit that none of us in this room approach without baggage. I promise you, unless you are an unbeliever who has never darkened the doors of a church before, you've never opened up a Bible, if you know absolutely nothing about Scripture, then maybe you don't have any baggage here, but for everyone else in the room, You're coming to the text with certain beliefs that you may or may not even be aware of, and so it affects us. Let me show you those five phrases. The first phrase is found here in verse 16, when he commands us to walk by the Spirit. The second in verse 18, when he tells us to be led by the Spirit. The third in verse 22, when he talks about the fruit of the Spirit. Fourth in verse 25, when he says that we should live by the Spirit. The fifth is also in verse 25, when he says we should keep in step with the Spirit. So I've got walk by the Spirit be led by the Spirit, have the fruit of the Spirit, live by the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit. These are ideas that no one in this room approaches without certain theological presuppositions. That's true of you. It's also true of mine. And I just don't think it's right for me to teach them, teach on this section, walk us through it without you knowing what mine are. So here we go. You can hear where I stand. When we talk about how the Holy Spirit works in our lives, I am what you would call a total cessationist. Okay, now that's a big term. Let me explain to you. But before I do, if there's like three of you in this room who know what that phrase already means, you might be tempted to go, Stacey, why are you bringing this up? That has to do with the issue of spiritual gifts, and Paul doesn't mention gifts here, so why would you even broach the topic? That's a great question. Uh, Let me give you a couple answers. One, I'd say you're right. It doesn't have to do, uh, excuse me, it does have to do with the issue of spiritual gifts, and Paul is not talking about it here, but I bring it up because these phrases are most likely going to evoke some of those thoughts and ideas and questions in people's mind, whether I bring it up or not. You're just going to have those thoughts. They're going to come to your mind. And as I work through the text, I'm going to say things or not say certain things, and it's going to cause you to ask questions, questions of me. And if I've learned anything over the years, it's that sometimes what I don't say in, in a sermon gets me in more trouble than what I do say, so I want to make sure that you understand why I do say and don't say certain things. I think that's only fair. I feel like I'm kind of stuck to do this. And secondly, I bring it up because I think it will help me get to the point faster about what I believe than almost anything else I could do. So bear with me for just a moment. Hear me out. When it comes to the issue of how the Spirit works in our lives, particularly when it comes to the area of spiritual gifts, there, uh, which most people I'd say would view as being one and the same, there are three normal, common views that people hold. Let me show them to you. The first is something called total continuationism. Total continuationism. And this is the belief that all of the spiritual gifts listed in the New Testament are uh, alive, active, and available today. Um, This would be the normal view held by most Pentecostals and Charismatics, even just maybe charismatically leaning believers. Uh, They would look at the spiritual gifts you see in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, Romans 12, all the other passages and say, yep, all of those are still available. This is what I was taught as a child, as a child, this is what I believe for many years. Um, and thankfully the concept is pretty straightforward. If you see a gift, it's still there. Okay, that's it. That's the whole concept in a nutshell. If you see it, it's still active. Assume that's the case. So I don't really think I need to explain more at the moment. Total continuationists then would expect that a life of walking in the Spirit and living by the Spirit and being led by the Spirit, like Paul describes here in Galatians 5 are going to contain all of the gifts that we see elsewhere in the New Testament. Okay, got it? That makes sense for a quick, quick overview? The second view is called partial continuationism or partial cessationism. They're actually the same thing, okay? Just whether you want to see the the glass is half empty or half full, or maybe the gifts is half empty or half full, however you want to say that. Uh, This is the belief that some of the spiritual gifts listed in the New Testament are, are still active and that some have ceased, okay? There's some in one group and some in the other group, and that's kind of the basic view. This would be the normal view, the normal position of most non-Pentecostal or charismatic Christians. So if you grew up in a church that was not Pentecostal or charismatic, this is most likely what your church believed. If I'm just going by pure statistics and odds, I'd say this would make up the vast, vast majority of all of those non-Pentecostal, non-charismatic churches. Uh, This view is a little bit more complicated than the other two, because it has to add a, add a whole nother layer of argumentation into its belief system to explain which gifts came to an end, which ones didn't, and why. And the classic uh, explanation given on that point, if I may summarize it very, very simply for us, is that typically the, the gifts are divided into categories of either miraculous or non miraculous or they're categorized into sign gifts or non-sign gifts. And so the thought or the argument is it's the miraculous or the sign gifts that come to an end while the non-miraculous, non-sign gifts continue to this day. Now, that is an oversimplified explanation, but it helps you get the general idea in a nutshell. Therefore, partial continuationists or partial cessationists, when they come to Galatians 5 and they read about walking in the Spirit and living your life in the Spirit and being led by the Spirit, they're going to assume that means that some of of the gifts we see in the New Testament will be present and some won't. Okay, got it? Fair enough. The third view is called total cessationism. And this is the belief that all of the spiritual gifts listed in the New Testament have come to an end, every single one of them. Uh, this is a minority view within non-charismatic evangelicalism, meaning I'm a rare bird, I'm weird, and you're free to call me that. I will gladly take the call. Uh, not a lot of us, but uh, like total continuationism, it's pretty simple to understand. If you see a gift, it's not there. Okay? That's the other one, if you see a gift, it's still there. This one is if you see a gift, it's not there anymore. So total cessationists would expect that a life of walking in the Spirit, being led by the Spirit, living in the Spirit, will include none of the spiritual gifts that you see listed in the New Testament. Now that you understand the three views... Let me do two things. So a lot of lists today, so if you're a note taker, you're going to love today. A lot of lists, right? First, of these three positions, I personally think, and this is just an opinion, and I don't say it to be uh, um, offensive to anyone. In fact, I just thought I'd make the, the larger group mad first. I personally think that the weakest and least biblically consistent of the three views is the middle one. Now, that typically surprises people when I say that to them because a lot of times they think, well, if you're a total cessationist, you would probably think the total continuationist position is the, the weakest. And actually, no, I I don't. I haven't thought of that for years. You might surprise you. I actually have a lot in common with my total continuationist friends in terms of what we believe. I, I think actually we're probably in step step for most of the way. We just sort of diverge at the end. And so, you know... Um, if I'm going to pick one of these three that I think may be the weakest, I think it's the middle view. And the reason why this is the case is because of that whole middle layer of argumentation that they have to add into their system for it to, to make sense of why some gifts continued and some gifts ended and which ones are which. You know, that's that's a lot. Uh, I, I started here, to be quite honest with you, when I, after I became a believer and was kind of moving away from where I had come. And I tried really hard to stay in this camp, but... Um, I just personally cannot find support in Scripture for dividing the gifts into any kind of categories and then saying that one ends and one doesn't. I just, I, I can't find it. Maybe you can, but I just, I just can't. Uh, in regards to dividing them into miraculous and non-miraculous categories, I think you would have a hard time with how the Scripture presents them. The, the two Greek words that are used to refer to these gifts, pneumatica and charismata, do not, Lend to that kind of thinking. Pneumatica just literally means a spirit gift. In other words, a divine miraculous intervention in someone's life. So, you know, it's not talking about something that was just commonplace, something normal that you maybe always had. It's talking about, boom, God showed up. Pneumatica, spirit happening, the divine miraculous type intervention in your life. Charismata sort of does the same thing, it means grace gift. And as such, it's not something that's earned or deserved. It is something that you are graciously given by God. The only other two things in Scripture that are called charismata are salvation and marriage. That's it. So I think about those categories. I mean, these are not things I have. These are things God came in and graciously gave me. So, so I see both of these things as pointing to the fact that these gifts are miraculous from God uh, in regards to some being, being signed gifts and others not being signed gifts. If they're all by definition miraculous, then wouldn't they all by definition be signs? I mean, in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 4, the writer seems to lump signs and wonders and miracles and these gifts of the Holy Spirit all into one category as if they're all synonyms. So I don't really see a way to distinguish them in that way either. So as I look at the wording in the New Testament and I, I look at the lack of any other evidence to indicate that you see these gifts falling into different categories, I just can't find a biblical justification for dividing them. Again, I'm not saying you can't. If you're sitting there like, Stacy, that's my view. Can you throw me a bone here? Is there anything? Anything in Scripture? Well, okay, I'll give, you, I'll give you the best I've got. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 9 is your best place to go. There, Paul says there are three specific gifts that will come to an end. Prophecy, knowledge, and tongues. So you could say that only those three were going to end, and the rest are going to continue. That, that could be an argument you make. However... You're going to have some struggles. Everybody has struggles. I don't care which camp you're in. You've got struggles here. But, you know, y- your struggle here is going to be, though, is that it? If those are the only three that ends, well, tongue's end, in, but interpretation doesn't, or knowledge ends, but the utterances of wisdom don't. Like, what are the – you're going to be tempted to expand, but you're going to have a really hard time justifying that expansion. I'm just letting you know where you've got to struggle, okay? If you're going to sit down and, like, work this out, this is where you've got to put in the time to try to understand why you would expand your thoughts out from there and how that all works. Total cessationist, total continuationist, we don't have that problem. So it's easier, right? We're just lazy is what it is for us. You know, we don't want to deal with that whole middle layer of, of argumentation. So I think all of us, those two groups would agree that all the gifts are miraculous, and that's as far as we really have to go on that point. Second, um, let me take a moment to expri- explain very briefly in a high-level kind of way where total cessationists and total continuationists agree, and then where they separate, okay? Because you kind of need to understand that a little bit just so you can get a sense of the issue. Uh, First, and I'll just give you four ways in which they agree. First, both groups would generally agree that the purpose of the gifts was for God himself to bear witness to the truthfulness of the gospel. The purpose of the gifts is for God Himself to bear witness to the truthfulness of the gospel. This comes from Hebrews chapter two, verses one through four, where the writer of Hebrews is saying that God bore witness by all of these things to the message of Jesus' death. So that's the purpose. Okay, that's just black and white in Scripture. I think you can can agree that maybe each side has another purpose or two they would add in, but at least that one is there. Plus, not to mention all the many Old Testament texts that we would point to that would seem to indicate some uh, similar idea. Number two, and as I already stated, I think both groups would generally agree that the gifts are miraculous, that these are things that God came and bestowed on people for that purpose I just gave. So they would be in agreement on that. Number three, both groups, actually all the groups, actually everyone who's a believer should agree to this one, but both of these groups would agree that the gifts played a a part in the life of the early church, right? They're in Acts. You see them. They're there. And you see them in the epistles. They're there. So why would we ever deny that? They happened. They, they were there. They're part of the story of the church. And so we should agree with that. That shouldn't be hard at all. And then number four, both groups would generally agree that these gifts were only partial and temporary in nature. And that comes directly from the text. I mean, most conservative theologians from both of those camps who look at Paul's comments in 1 Corinthians 13 recognize the point that he's making there, and that is that these gifts were only ever partial and temporary. They're not meant to last into eternity. That was never the the purpose of it. Everyone in those groups who, who recognizes that agrees they're going to come to an end, and that end is going to come when the perfect or complete thing, person, or event shows up, 1 Corinthians 13, 9. So whatever that is, when that moment comes, that's when, that's when this comes to an end. So they would generally agree on that point as well. But, of course, it's also that point <clears throat> where these two groups diverge. As a broad brush uh, over generalization and oversimplification of the topic, total continuationists generally view that perfect thing that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 13. This is the majority view, anyway, for, these, for that camp um, – they view it as being the return of Jesus, okay? the end of the age, the, the moment when we see Christ face to face. And they have reasons for why they think that. That's not just being like, you know, pulled out of thin air. There's real biblical evidence for why they would go that route and view it in that way. And so because they see that as being the perfect thing that Paul is referring to that will bring an end to the gifts, since Jesus hasn't come back yet, guess what? The gifts continue to this day. Right? That makes sense. You follow the logic there? It's that's sound. It's, it, it works within the system. So I'm, I understand that. On the other side, and again, as a broad brush, generalization and, and oversimplification, total cessationists tend to view that perfect thing as being the completed scriptures, the completed New Testament, the end of revelation, written revelation from God. And so because they see it as that, that leads them to see the gifts ending sometime after you know the death of the apostles there very early on in the life of the church and, therefore no longer active and available today. Again, there's reasons why they think that. There's some biblical reasons that point them in that direction. But because they end up there, they end up at a a different point of when it stops. Does that make sense? Now, which of those two views is right? I mean, that is the question, isn't it? That's the one that divides everybody over this particular subject. Um, It's the million-dollar question. Well, this is where we need... Both some biblical honesty and some biblical humility to take center stage in everybody. Everybody. I don't care which group you're in. We need it here. The honest biblical answer to the question of which one is right is I don't know. I cannot tell you from the scriptures, chapter and verse, black and white, which of those answers is correct. I see the arguments down one path, they're not invalid. I see the arguments down the other path, they're not invalid. So I don't know. Obviously, people have an opinion, and you kind of have to come to one if you're going to answer the question, but, but I don't really know. I mean, I have good, total, continuationist friends with whom I totally disagree on this subject who have spent serious time in Scripture and have come to an understanding that is real and meaningful. And you know what? I respect them. I disagree with them, but I respect them. And I know that it's out of the notes for just a minute. You know, it is possible to disagree with someone and respect them at the same time. I don't know if that's, I feel like our culture has lost that concept as you look around at the news and social media and what goes on. People don't seem to be able to process that. You can disagree with someone, even strongly, and still respect them. It is possible. Just as a quick little aside, um, Those friends of mine have wrestled deeply with the text. They have tried to give a biblical answer to a very difficult question, and I have nothing but respect for them, even if I disagree. Obviously, though, when I have to answer the question (coughs) for myself as to which of those views is correct, I land on the total cessationist side. And for what it's worth, I did not end up here very quickly. Um, It took me years Of thinking and like reading and studying to end up here. So I say this now to you in all love. I'll say it again at the end. There is no sense in which what I am doing today should change anyone's mind. Because there is no way that a 30 to 40 minute talk is ever going to get anywhere near the level of specificity and depth that you have to go to if you're going to really answer this question for yourself. So don't understand today to be doing that. I already told you I'm not trying to convince you. I have wrestled with this issue for years, and despite all of my wrestling, I still have questions I can answer, and I would not dare call myself an expert on this. But this is where I stand, and I want to let you know just why I ended up here. Again, I'm just going to explain, just briefly list nine reasons that brought me to this point. And you can do with them what you want, but... I'll just let me state them. I think you'll understand where this is going, and I'll make a comment or two at, about it at the end as well. First, nine issues. I'm bothered by the fact that the New Testament never defines the gifts. For example, as you know, I look in 1 Corinthians 13, what's the difference between an utterance of wisdom and an utterance of knowledge? And how would I even go about answering that question biblically? I don't even know where to turn. I can, like, maybe look at this idea and that idea, but it's. It's hard. And so the fact that there's no definitions or given for any of these gifts, it makes me hesitant to try to provide them when Scripture doesn't. Second, I'm bothered by the fact that the New Testament never explains or illustrates how the majority of these gifts are supposed to work or function within the church. I mean, what's the person who has the gift of distinguishing spirits supposed to do practically? What are they supposed to do? And how would I answer that question again biblically? That's always what I come back to. Like, where would I turn in Scripture? What How would I answer this in any way that's authoritative and not just my opinion? Number three, how and when does someone receive these gifts? Does the Bible teach that that they're automatically given at salvation, or do they come later? Is it something that God just gives sort of on his own, or is it something that you have to receive through someone else? Paul in 2 Timothy 1 verse 6 tells Timothy to exercise the gift that he received when Paul laid hands on him. So is that how it's supposed to work normally? I don't know. I just, that's a question we're not told. Fourth, how do we know what gifts we have? I mean, is there any biblical test or measurement that helps us determine this? Or are we free to use other means or methods? I I don't know. Fifth, are the specific gifts listed in the New Testament all of the gifts available to the church or are there others? Jordan made reference to it uh, earlier on. I've had people come to me and say they have the gift of music. And I'm like, okay, well, that's not in the New Testament. So I don't know what to do with that. I'm not saying they don't. I don't know. I, how, would I, how would I limit that? If I'm not limited to just what's there, what's the, I have the gift of monster truck racing? Like, I don't know. Like, how far out can I go? I say that to so be funny, but I'm also making a point. Like, I just, you understand my tension there? I don't understand what to do with it. So are we limited or is there more? Uh, sixth, why, when you put the New Testament letters in chronological order, does the amount of information on the gifts progressively shrink? Acts has a lot of, uh, of activity, a lot of stuff going on. You see it there. Peter is the last one to mention them in his first letter, chapter 4, I believe it is, where he talks about just generally gifts of service and speaking. John doesn't talk about it at all. He's the last one to write. And Jesus, in addressing the seven churches in Revelation, doesn't bring it up. Now, that's an argument from silence, and it may not mean anything, but it's at least worth the question. I don't know the answer to the question. Seventh, uh, why aren't the leaders of the church, pastors and deacons, required to have a gift? Any gift? That list of qualifications, none is given. You say, well, they're supposed to be able to teach, right, but they're not required to have the gift of teaching or any other gift for that matter. So it just stands out as, as interesting to me. Eighth, what do we do with 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17? Now, this is either Paul's last letter or next to his last letter. So as his final comments to the church as a whole, he doesn't make the church gift, uh, gift dependent. He makes them word dependent. He says, all scripture given by inspiration of God, profitable for doctrine reproof, correction, instruction, and in righteousness that the man of God may be complete and thoroughly equipped for every good work. Okay, well, if the scriptures are making me complete and thoroughly equipped for every good work, what, how do gifts fit into that? I don't know. I just, that's an issue. And then finally, ninth. If these gifts were so critical to and expected to be found in the continued life of the church, then why is there so little information given about them in the New Testament? I mean, not only are the questions I just asked, the other eight, uh, unanswered, but the fact is there just isn't a lot of data that we can turn to on this topic. If if the Corinthians, who were messing everything up, if the Corinthians hadn't been messing up the issue of gifts at all, we wouldn't have very much to go on. That's the longest treatment, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. Outside of that, my next biggest one is Romans 12, 4 through 8, and very little outside of that. So I I just don't have a lot of data. So if it's this important to the life of the church, then then why? Now, in all fairness, and again, this is not intended to be a thorough presentation. It just can't be. My total continuationist friends and my partial continuationist friends would, would have answers to some of those issues that you would have to hear in order to be able to fully process the, the overall topic, okay? And they would have questions back to me that I would have to answer for them, okay? Same like I have questions for them. It, it works both ways. It's not, I already said it, it's not 100% clear. So I'm just letting you know that this is how it works, but these are the sets of questions that, that, that affect me, but you're only hearing one side of the story. Just keep that in mind. You have to wrestle with the entire issue before you make a decision. You cannot do that out of anything I say today. Now, why did I cover all of this as we begin studying this new section of Galatians? Well, I did it because I wanted you to understand as we begin to walk through this text, and I'm talking about walking in the Spirit and living life in the Spirit and being led by the Spirit, why I say some of the things I say and why I don't say some of the other things that you might expect me to say. Because again, you all have you have baggage. If you expected me to get into any of those areas or bring any of those up, at least now you'll know why. Because when I look at what it means to walk in the Spirit, I just interpret it a, a bit differently. I hope it's not hugely differently, but it is a bit differently than maybe what you've heard before. And, and I want to make sure that, that that's clear. I hope that was helpful. In conclusion, let me address two final areas, and then we will be done. First, Understand that being a total cessationist does not mean that I deny the centrality and importance of the Spirit's work in our lives. Normally, when I share my thoughts with people, that's the first accusation I get back. You're denying the Spirit. You're denying the Spirit's power. You think the Spirit's not important in your life. Uh, No. I, I mean this with no disrespect to the people who say those things I would say that that response is based maybe a little bit more on ignorance than on fact. Because once you really stop and you think through the bigger picture here, the New Testament, all the New Testament uh, information on the work of the Spirit in our lives, it's way bigger than gifts. If that's all you think the Spirit does, then yeah, I can maybe see why you, you think that. But the Spirit does a lot more than that. And we should all be in agreement on those things, right? If we don't have the Spirit within us, then we don't belong to Jesus, Romans 8. I, I hope we all agree with that. That has to be the case. Paul is going to make the point here, and we're going to walk through it, that we have to be walking in the Spirit, living our life in the Spirit. One of the whole points of the Spirit conversation in Galatians is that it is through the Spirit that we say no to the desires of the flesh, I totally believe the Spirit is critical to our daily Christian lives. I do not deny that at all. I don't deny miracles. I don't deny a lot of other things. I've been accused of all kinds of weird things. But my point is just there's a lot more to the doctrine of the Spirit than this one area. And on all those other aspects, we're probably together. But you just needed to know why I'm different here because it's just not going to come up in the text as I talk. And Anyway, you'll see more as we keep going. Stick with me and hopefully be clear. Secondly, can I end by addressing how we should move forward on this topic if we don't agree? Because I don't expect anyone to agree with me. I I don't. I'm not asking for it. I really am not. Um, And past experience has taught me that whenever this topic comes up, I'm going to hear about it later. Okay? (laughs) I wish that wasn't the case, but it is generally, I I typically will hear about it later. Uh, For some reason that I have yet to figure out, people tend to be more passionate about this one specific slice of theology than they are about any other piece of their theology. I don't know why that is, why this one is so near and dear to people's hearts, but it seems to be. And while I'm normally okay with people being very passionate about what they believe, this one doesn't always seem to play out very well. So it makes me a little nervous as I talk about it. Um, So here, here are some thoughts. First, as I said at the beginning, what I share today represents my view alone and not the elders'. So if you have any issue, and I hope you don't, I hope you've understood my heart, I hope I've been clear, but if you have an issue or a concern, you have one person and one person only to talk to, and that's me. Come talk to me. I'm not scary. I really am not. I'll buy you coffee. We'll sit down. We'll talk. I will help you attack me, okay? I, will, I don't say this with any pride. I probably know your position better than you do, so I will give you all the best arguments and help you out as best I can. I'm serious about that. I am totally serious about that. I will help you. I just want you to know where you stand, and I want you to stand there, securely, firmly, confidently. So, come talk to me if you have a question. My door is open. Second, please remember that my purpose in saying all of this this morning is not to try to convince you of my positions; just rather to help you understand where I'm coming from. I'm going to say something to you, and I love you. I love you so. You know, when I start with "I love you," it's going to be. It's, I'm known for that. I love you. Um, If you walk out of here today and you change your position because of anything I said this morning, you're a fool. Because you have not wrestled with the the issue. You heard one side of a of a story, not even the full. Like, I boy, if you only knew how big this was and how much I have condensed to get it down to this little time period, you would, yeah, you would not change anything until you have really worked this through. So, so I'm not trying to convince anyone. I'm just trying to help you understand where I'm at. And I just don't want anyone to be confused as we move into the text. I've already said that. I won't say any more. Third, I believe when it comes to this topic, we all need to be honest and humble and recognize it is not 100% clear. I don't care how well you know your position and how firm you are in it. Be honest and humble. <laughs> it's not 100% clear. I might be wrong. Okay? I might be. You might be wrong. I don't know. We'll find out. Okay? We will find out in heaven who was right and who was wrong. Just be honest. Just be humble. If it wasn't, if it was clear, we wouldn't even be talking about it. Number four, if you want to talk to me or anyone else for that matter, please don't start off or even come to the issue of people's experiences, your own or others. Look, experience is never authoritative in the Christian life. I hope you recognize that. It's never. Scriptures are authoritative. Experience is not. And so, you know, when I look at, hear about experiences that people have had, I recognize that some of them are likely true and real and from the Lord. I, I believe that. And I also recognize that some are not. People lie about experiences. It happens all the time. And sometimes people have false experiences. Jesus addressed that in Matthew 7 with the people who come to him saying, Lord, Lord, we did all these amazing things. And he's like, I don't know who you are. People can have false experiences, and I I can't discern between them. I don't even have a place to start. Why would I even want to? So so let's not go to experiences. If we're going to talk, let's talk about Scripture. Only Scripture can determine beliefs, nothing else. Fifth, if you want to disagree, please, please, please fight like brothers, not like enemies. I had three good friends in high school, the Spence brothers, William uh, Thomas and Aaron. Aaron was in my class, was one of my best friends. These boys were country boys. Their dad owned a lot clearing business, a sand and gravel business. They were big boys, okay? You would not want to get in a fight with any of them. And I would watch them. Sometimes I'd be over at their house, and William would start messing with Aaron and, like, poking him and messing with him. And next thing you know, they're on the ground wrestling, and wrestling turns into punching, and punching turns into <laughs> – it would get ugly. And then Mrs. Spence would come up, and while she wasn't as big as them, they, they feared her, and she'd be like, it!" it's all back off, okay? They'd fight like brothers, and it could be rough sometimes if you ever mess with one of them you got all three, and you did not want all three of the Spence boys. I promise you if you're picking people to be on your team, you'd pick them okay because they would be good to have. I just say that to remind you that we are brothers on this topic, and so if we're gonna fight, we can do it, but it better be like brothers. It better not be like enemies okay you can you can have a, a tough conversation and go at it and I have believe me I've had All kinds of fun conversations with people and friends to this day I'll have tough conversations with and we'll, and then afterwards we'll go get lunch together. Okay? Because we're brothers. We're going to fight like brothers. We're not going to fight like enemies. Please do the same. Um, Sixth, if you want to disagree and if you want to argue with me or anyone else, you better make sure you know what you believe and you better be able to defend it for Scripture before you come. I've said this before in other contexts. Some of you cornerstone old timers around here will remember this statement. Um, I don't like dumb Christians. Remember that, a few of you? I don't like dumb Christians. I don't like people who just say, well, I believe this, and you go, why? And they're like, because my mom said it. That's not a valid answer. I hope you know that. Uh, I just ruined a few of your day. um, I'm serious. Like, you can disagree with me or anyone else on this topic or any other, but you better know why you believe it. You better have an answer. If you come to me and say, I don't like what you said, and I say why, and you don't know, then you're just whining, all right? I don't want whining. I'm fine with talking, but I don't want whining, so don't whine to people. If you don't know what you believe and you don't know why, guess what you got today? You got a homework assignment. Go home and study. Seriously, and I'll help you. You don't know where to start, I will point you in directions. Go home and study, and make sure you know what you believe and why, and then we can come and talk about it. And then finally, remember... I do love you guys, and again, as I said at the beginning, I'm not trying to make anyone angry this morning. I'm not trying to, to attack anyone or their beliefs. For 10 years now, you know me. I have tried to stand up here, and I failed at this, and there's been points where I've had to come back and say I was wrong about things. So I have tried to stand up and, and faithfully and fully proclaim God's word to you. So as I'm, as I'm saying these things, no, I have reasons. They might not be right, and I could be incorrect, and I'd freely admit that up front, but just maybe assume the best. And try to discern the heart in this and know that I'm doing it so that you can listen with discernment in the weeks ahead. And you can completely disagree with me, and that's okay. Now you'll know why. Now you'll know where you disagree, and you'll understand when I say something and be like, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Throw that one out. Okay, You'll now you know. How often do you get that in life, right? Now you know. like I gave, it, I gave it to you there. So now I'm just trying to do the same thing that I hope you're trying to do, and that is to understand God's Word correctly, To live it consistently and let it take me wherever it wants to take me. To never put my beliefs on it. To let it affect my beliefs. And if that is our common goal, then any differences we have will be handled, I believe, in genuine Christ-like love. And it is in that hope and prayer I ask you to bow your heads, and we'll end our time this morning. Jesus, this is a very complicated and big issue, and I don't know if there's wisdom in this or foolishness or a little bit of both. I. I pray that you will give us as your people, not just even within the realm of Cornerstone, just as your people, the church as a whole, unity and love and and humility and an ability to recognize when things are clear in the scriptures and when things aren't. And to be able to go forth together on those truths, it's a shame what has happened to your church over the centuries. It's a shame how we've let things that are secondary divide and cause us to look at each other as enemies when that was not. (laughs) That goes against everything we've seen in Galatians up to this point. We're supposed to love one another as you have loved us. And I just pray that that would not be the case. And so, Lord, whether it's this topic or anything else, make us one. Keep us unified in love. Keep us unified in the person of Jesus Christ until that day when we see him face to face and we are finally brought to the full unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God that Paul talks about in Ephesians 4. Help us until that day comes to walk in Christian love one for another in this and everything else we ask in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For more sermons on the book of Galatians and further information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.